and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Hello and welcome. Today, I am very, very, very excited to be joined by Matthew Siegel. I'm, I'm wait, I was looking for the E there, but Siegel, got it. Uh, head of, head of Dig- Digital Asset Research at Van Eck. Uh, Matthew, it's so great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So Matt, can you walk us through your background pre-crypto? Sure. Uh, I started my career as a news reporter uh, covering finance at Bloomberg and CNBC. So kind of watched how the the narrative of our mass media uh, coalesces. It's not a very pleasant experience. Uh, So got disillusioned with that, got, um, you know, tired of interviewing people with bigger balance sheets than me all the time. Uh, So I got my CFA and kind of networked my way until I found a PM who wanted to hire me. uh, And that was Kathy Wood before she started ARK Invest in the Alliance Bernstein days. So spent four years at Alliance Bernstein working for Kathy covering tech, web two, cyclicals, uh, and kind of everything related to innovation and disruption. So there, yeah. No, I mean, I was going to ask really quickly before you continue. I mean, obviously, you know, the Alliance Bernstein on your resume as a portfolio manager makes a little sense now, but, but can you, can you kind of go into like what your take is on Kathy and your experience working with her and kind of obviously ARC is, has been in the news for not, you know, necessarily the best of reasons recently, kind of your take on everything that's going on there before we kind of continue, just, just out of curiosity. Sure. You know, Kathy is a tremendous risk taker uh, who is constantly kind of on the vanguard of like what's going to be the next innovation and what's going to disrupt existing business models. And she doesn't have much time for benchmarks. Uh, And so, you know, the funds that we were running, although nominally benchmarked to the S&P 500, uh, exhibited a lot of volatility, a, a lot of tracking error, Definitely some alpha over the years, uh, but it, it, it was a wild ride. Learned a lot. It, you know, the focus when I was there was internet companies, you know, Amazon, open source software companies like Red Hat. You know, we were early into uh, kind of virtual items in in gaming. Um, so now that when I look back on those days, I can see the writing on the wall of how we both arrived at crypto kind of separately, because when I left in 2011, you know, there, there wasn't really any Bitcoin. So I, I got steeped in the network power, the uh, Metcalf's law, and how these asset light platforms were just inherently going to print bigger margins than their competitors. And even when I left Kathy in 2011, I spent 10 years uh, in investment banking, research and sales, writing kind of multi-asset strategy, covering stocks. I I always had in the back of my head, what's going to be what are going to be the companies that disrupt these Web2 giants with their massive margins? And I sure hoped it wasn't going to be regulation, but my antenna were up. And when kind of the FANG stocks started to take a disproportionate amount of uh, the market share of the S&P 500, 
and I was doing a lot of research into Google and watching the demise of the news industry where I'd spent so many years and you could see like, you know, Google's top line versus the total employment at newspapers and magazines, these charts that crossed in like 2009 or 2008. Uh, and then I learned about this technology, cryptography, um, which had been really kind of an ivory tower technology, right? There was some mathematical innovation in the 70s. Um, that knowledge was really kind of kept at, by governments and universities and the internet came along and democratized all this information and suddenly everyone had access to the underlying cryptography and that on the back of that came bitcoin which was as i saw it kind of the killer app 1.0 of cryptography uh, that would democratize finance and it was missing and still is missing a lot of features uh, that have been added on with other coins but at least I, in 2017, got conviction that, that Bitcoin was going to be a big deal and started buying. And so what kind of dis what made you kind of make the decision to go from just being a purchaser of Bitcoin and somebody who was tangentially involved to actually moving into the space full time? And I know we, we spoke about Alliance Bernstein, but maybe you could speak about the other things that kind of were in between, you know, your experience with Kathy and then coming into crypto and what kind of made you make that switch? Yeah, sure. So 2017, I remember staying home from work one day and telling my boss I had to read this book about blockchains. And he's like, what the F? And that was kind of how I got conviction. On, what was the book, by the way? Oh, man. Well, it, it was some like, I don't even remember to tell you the truth. It was like how blockchains work, right? I can, oh, I can yeah. send it to you for yeah. the show notes. It was pretty dense stuff. But I kind of put it on the back burner. You know, the day job in investment banking was going okay. Uh, I was like auto buying some Bitcoin every once in a while. Uh, and when when COVID came around, really, and for me, it was the the true demise of the mainstream news industry. Right? Suddenly, nothing I was reading and mainstream media was making sense, and it seemed like there was just this kind of two-track path on what is the truth. And that is that can be demoralizing, uh, but it can also highlight um, technologies or situations where the truth is very evident. And on the blockchain, uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain, every 10 minutes, everyone on that network can coalesce around what is the truth. And that for me was a really powerful dynamic that I was sure was gonna grow in value over the years. At the time, I was working for a Chinese investment bank. So this is, you know, Xi Jinping taking power, consolidating, really starting to crack down on uh, the internet companies. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of the writing on the wall that, okay, this COVID is going to empower governments to take a lot more control than they had had in the past. There's going to be secondary effects to that. A lot of things are going to get distorted, monetary policy, obviously. Uh, and, you know, this is right around DeFi summer. So if Bitcoin was killer app 1.0, as I saw it, smart contracts were killer app 2.0. That was what was going to bring programmability to the blockchain and enable all types of microtransactions that weren't economically rational. So I had a you know opportunity to meet a you know very inspiring, aggressive uh, CEO who wanted to you know grow his uh, crypto business, and we that's what we've been collaborating on for the last year and a half here. Yeah. And so can you speak, you know, a bit to what Vanek is more traditionally? I mean, I, I know a lot of folks that are listening are probably familiar with the firm, but I'm sure not all are. So what Vanek does more traditionally and then 
how the firm is kind of operating in the crypto space because Vanek was actually, and I, I think people that have been in this space for a while know this, but Vanek was very, very, very early from to crypto. And so kind of speaking about, you know, the traditional side and how, how you're operating in crypto and kind of the core offerings in the space. Sure. There are actually a lot of synergies and it goes back to the history of the firm. So this is a firm that was founded in 1955. It's a family owned firm. The founder's son uh, is the CEO now. So his, his name is on the door. And the way that the firm got prominence was in the early 70s, the current CEO's father was running this international mutual fund, which at the time was pretty innovative in itself, non-U.S. stocks. And he observed uh, what was happening with the U.S. You know, about to go off the gold standard and eventually doing so. And he pivoted that international fund into almost all gold mining stocks. Uh, so that was a home run of a call. The, the fund was like the best performing mutual fund in the U.S. for the 1970s. And that really catapulted uh, Vanek to where it is today, which is dominant in gold mining and resource equities. So we have the largest gold mining ETF, GDX. Uh, and so when Bitcoin came around, Jan, uh, CEO of the firm, was highly attuned to the potential disruptive impact on our core business, uh, which are these gold mining stocks. Uh, so you're correct that we were among the first to file for a spot Bitcoin ETF. That has turned out to be a sideshow. You know, Five years later, still not approved, uh, but we're not the type of firm to sit still. So when we couldn't get that off the ground, um, we've spent a few years making a number of private investments across the space. Uh, so we, we've made private investments into exchanges like Gemini, FTX, Binance, a whole number of kind of emerging markets-based exchanges where oftentimes the technology disruption happens quicker because they'll skip an intermediate technology and go, you know, straight to the to the good stuff. Think like switching, skipping the fax machine straight to email. Uh, and we also made a number of investments in venture capital firms across the space, in, including uh, seeding an early stage fund where we now own a, a part of the GP. Um, so those private investments gave us access to people. Uh, they built our network and they allowed us to you know, enter into commercial agreements with, with counterparties who might not have paid attention to us because we're not native crypto. So you know, writing those checks was, was very helpful. And then over the last year and a half, we've uh, introduced more than 15 uh, separate crypto strategies. Uh, so in Europe, where regulation is much easier when it comes to listing these funds. We've got more than a dozen single token and multi-token crypto funds that trade as exchange traded notes on Euronext and SIX and all the European exchanges. And then here in the US, we have three hedge funds. Uh, because, the, because of the regulation, we can't list these uh, these token funds. We're not a big fan of the um, listed OTC strategy that some of our competitors are, are going down where you get these very wide premiums and discounts that don't make for a very pleasurable investor experience. So we're, we've done the, the private route and uh, we now have three hedge funds in the market as well. Are these are those hedge funds like active strategies? Or are they more kind of they mo look more like ETFs that are just private and can't be listed? They're more like active strategies, uh, but they have a, a variety of kind of risk and return. So uh, one of them is a lending fund. So we lend dollars short term to CFI players, and that that might sound like a you know a challenging strategy given the events of the last few months. Uh, but we've 
managed uh, the downdraft quite well. We've never had a down month in that fund. And it's really about counterparty selection. So we spend a lot of time talking to the exchanges, the OTC players, the market makers about their onboarding processes, how they handle risk, what their loan books look like. Uh, we sign NDAs to get a little, you know what we can, a peak of the books. And we're just performing traditional credit analysis, uh, limiting our counterparties to a very small number who have uh, you know large balance sheets and sophisticated risk management techniques and essentially lending overnight dollars. So it's like a digital commercial paper fund. Um, so that is definitely actively managed. You can't replicate it in ETF form in any way. Yeah, yeah of course. The second fund, uh, which I manage, is called Smart Contract Leaders. Um, that is an actively managed kind of index fund. So we did a taxonomy of the space. We classified the top 300 or so crypto assets into eight sectors, and then we uh, commissioned our index subsidiary to create indices based on these sectors. And then when we did the fundamental work, uh, one of the sectors, smart contract platforms, kind of stands out as most investable, most liquid, the largest total addressable market. Think Ethereum as being you know, 30 to 40% of this index uh, at any given time. Uh, and then I'm act- I actively manage a fund that tries to meet or beat that index at kind of a predictable level of tracking error and turnover. Uh, so it's a beta product. It's not a performance fee. It's a straight kind of assets under management, um, 1% fee. And then the third fund that we've recently brought to market, uh, we hired a portfolio manager from Millennium with a traditional credit background and have launched a more opportunistic 2 and 20 hedge fund that will buy really anything, uh, any token. Uh, so those are the three private fund offerings that we have. Had Vanek had a hedge fund offering before, like an active managed fund like this Millennium PM is, is going to be running? Is, or is that a new concept to the we firm? We did have a pretty big hedge fund business about a decade ago, multi-billion okay. dollars in hedge funds that as things happen, they're, they're cyclical. Uh, so that business didn't exist in its current form when, when I joined. And, and Vanek is making, you know, the, a big GP contribution to this fund and then, you know, basically bringing in like who are who are the who are the LPs in the fund is it is it like people that are traditionally investors in a lot of Vanex other products from an institutional point of view are you bringing like a lot of traditional pensions and endowments into this fund like where where's the interest that you're seeing yeah so like our our traditional channel is registered investment advisors, you know, pension funds, institutional investors, wirehouses, you know, our big partners of ours. Those are not really the first movers when it comes to crypto. So while we have had some success uh, in that arena, and we recently signed up uh, Fairfax County's pension fund for to come into our, our new finance income fund, that lending vehicle, there are some hospital chains that are LPs. There's an insurance company who's got their general account in my fund. So there are some traditional institutional investors that are that are early here, uh, but then we've had to be more flexible and explore the family office route as well because because those have just been the kind of the early allocators to this space. My observation from talking to a lot of clients and prospects is that there's definitely a lot of work being done by consultants, pension funds, you know, all of your traditional institutional investors, ex the banks, uh, feels like are getting there. 
But then if you go across the pond to Europe, it's a completely different and much more bearish backdrop where the institutional investors are. Is the LP base historically more US-centric or European-centric for the firm? I'm assuming it's US just where based off where you're domiciled. More US, more US. Okay. But we do have we have operations in, in Europe, wholly owned subsidiaries in Europe and Australia. Those are multi-billion dollar businesses as well. But I just find it ironic, I guess, that on the listed side, you can do so much more in Europe. And yet, right. and that, the institutional and then the investors are so 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 much far further behind. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean, people tend to view at least institutions as Europe as being very, 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 very risk averse. But then the actual listed products, yeah, it's it's interesting. It also in in some ways though speaks to the fact that some U.S. policy maybe doesn't make all that much sense as it relates to ETFs. I'm sure you have an opinion on that, like the fact that the spot. ETF and the futures ETF have the same underlying index, uh, yet they can't get approved. So I don't know if you have a thought on, you know, just on that note, where we are from a regulatory point of view on ETFs and whether or not you think we're at this point, it's even anywhere near, you know, is, is in Gensler's term as SEC commissioner, are we, do we even have a chance of seeing an ETF approved? Can you predict the outcome of a hostage situation? Uh, because yeah, that's true. really what what it is, right? Is the chairman well, is holding outcome is usually the ETF bad hostage? Of, yeah, uh, just how bad the hostage situation is. <laughs> right. I mean, sometimes the you know the criminal in, in the hostage to continue the hostage analogy like gets tired and resigns. Um, so that's a that's a potential outcome, but. We know we're we're at a loggerheads, and as as you note, the logic is doesn't make a ton of sense as to why this hasn't been approved. So we just put it to the side and you know deal with what we can do, which is right now pick the tokens that go up, hopefully. And so I think that's a great segue into what is your role as head of research and tell. So I know you mentioned that you're kind of like acting as kind of like a portfolio manager for this uh, smart contract fund. But what what does it really you know mean to be head of research at Vanek for head of digital asset research for that matter? Yeah, so I coordinate the firm's crypto research, manage a team of analysts who are digging deep on individual tokens. Uh, run one of our funds, as I mentioned, uh, and then help the firm with our private investments, uh, which include these five different VC firms and uh, and a kind of our one-off uh, private stakes as well. And that includes dealing with exchanges and data providers, um, you know, understanding and hopefully underwriting the tokens that we own, managing position sizes in the fund that I manage, and communicating essentially with everyone internally and externally to make sure all the knowledge is known by all. And so didn't have this written down, but I think it's a, a worthwhile question. You know, you got, as, as an LP and five VC funds, and also, you know, actually I'm familiar with the fund, you're a GPN, big fan of, of the two founders of that fund. They're awesome. They've had a, a bunch of, of great bets. Wh- where do you see the VC space in crypto going over the next six months to a year? In terms of like, do you think there's a lot of dry powder out there? You know, do you think there's this is kind of like a lull? Do you think the space ultimately corrects? I mean, my my honest opinion, you know, being a founder is that valuations were stupid. They didn't make any sense at all. I mean, you know, I, it doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to, to see that a $90 million seed round pre-product is a little bit asinine, for lack of better terms. But that's just my opinion. I'm curious as to yours. <laughs> Yeah, totally agree. And thanks for the shout out on Cadenza, Max and Kumar, who've done an excellent job with that 
uh, with that fund. And, you know, they, they raised $50 million uh, more than a year ago and have only deployed 40% of it. So they've done a great job of kind of waiting for the deal flow to calm down a little bit before before writing some of these checks. But yeah, valu- valuations were ahead of themselves, but there's $7 billion of dry powder was the last number that I saw in cash by VC firms who you know are ready to write checks. Uh, I think and that also have- doesn't include all of the traditional funds that like, I mean, there's a, there's a mill, I mean, that have put checks. I mean, you go down the list of like your Warburg Pincuses and your IVPs and your blah, 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 whatever. There's a battery ventures. There's a million traditional funds that are two, five, 10, 20, 30, 40 billion in AUM that are still putting checks in the space. Yeah. I mean, we like the, we like the seed stage and early stage and think that's the most pure and that's where there's going to be pricing power because some of the kind of later round growth oriented VCs, a lot of times they're sitting on tokens, they're buying tokens in the open market, and they're locking up for seven years and charging, you know, what they're charging. It feels like um, not a business model that's going to that's gonna keep assets as the as the asset class matures. And that was really the point of the Smart Contract Leaders Fund, as an example, is we've got a lot of LPs who've done very well in these VC funds. The, the, a lot of times the funds have matured. They're looking for a way to deploy these assets into the asset class with maybe a little more beta and a little less alpha and more liquidity uh, at a radically different fee structure. So that's our thesis for for the index fund, at least. But early stage, seed stage, you know, neutralizing for valuations, uh, that seems to be, from our perspective, the best place to be, especially as a, as a liquid, uh, traditionally a liquid asset manager. Um, that's where, you know, we don't we don't have direct overlap, so it's not competitive, but we can still get good information and uh, a powerful network from 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 those VCs. So you actually have brought up a, a, something a couple of times, which is interesting, which is beta, you know, and, and risk management in crypto. So how do you actually think about risk management in light of digital assets? You know, because no one is talking about VAR or expected shortfall or any sort of comp you know, or even moderately, modestly complex, you know, portfolio risk analytics and data. How do you guys think about risk, both from a market metrics point of view, you know, like a beta, but also from a more, you know, like smart contract point of view, like a hack point of view or a counterpart of view? Like, how do you view risk kind of holistically within digital assets? The holistic view is that risk is higher. So prepare your clients appropriately. Uh, like, I mean, when my, when my, one of my LPs said, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying your fund because I'm prepared to buy more of it 50% lower. So that's the kind of LP that we like, who's ready for uh, a wild ride because we are kind of long directional. None of these strategies are, are Delta neutral. These are, these are long directional that are, that are going to work with the asset class. We don't think that the asset class is ready for a long, short, vehicle. Um, the prices are just not efficient. There's too much volatility. Uh, so in the alpha fund, uh, it's more of a long directional with ability to move into cash when things get overheated. Uh, and then just trying to manage the marginal benefits of diversification, uh, especially in the smart contract index where you know there's 10 or so coins. You know, Are you getting diversification benefits uh, versus adding tracking error? That's really the calculus that, that I'm trying to go through. And 
there's not a ton of diversification to be had uh, in the altcoins, right? The correlations are generally 90% plus uh, among the altcoins. And the only time you get some, you know, very low correlation is with a, when a coin is either an extreme dog or, or mooning extremely. So, yeah, I, I think it's more strap in and, and get ready for a wild ride when it comes to uh, like long directional strategies. Um, now, in the lending fund where we're really relying on our counterparties to extend credit in a responsible manner, then the risk is um, – you know, more operational in the sense that the onboarding process that we have with these clients, there's a lot of lawyer to lawyer talk, a lot of, kind of the operational details that will give us more confidence that we're going to get our money back. And so, you know, one of the questions I had written for later, and I'll, I think it's, it's relevant to go over it now, is, you know, kind of talking about the future of digital assets and whether or not it's a multi-chain future. So obviously, you're managing a smart contract fund, right? Which, you know, implies multi-chain. But, you know, do you think it's possible to pick winners and losers in the, in the you know, the, the smart contract space? Are there particular projects that have you excited? And in the long run, you know, you mentioned that 30% of the fund is ETH or 40% of the fund because naturally 30 to 40% of the smart contract market is Ethereum. Do you think we get to a point where there's one very, very dominant player or there's a number of smaller players? Like, how do you how do you see it shaping up or do you have no idea, which is why you're just like, let me index the market? So if you look at the smart contract platform sector that we made, um, ETH by market cap is call it 70%. Uh, the index that we designed, we cap a single coin at a max of 30%. So, by definition, the index is a bet on a multi-chain future uh, because otherwise you'd be owning seventy percent ETH. Now, within within that that call, like it's multi-chain. Okay, so what does that mean? So there's layer ones, right? The, there's monolithic layer ones uh, like uh, Solana, and then there's modular layer ones like Ethereum or Avalanche, and both those architectures can play a role. So that's one type layer once. Then you've got your exchanges uh, like Binance, which has its own chain, or Crypto.com, which is uh, Kronos on the Tendermint chain. And they have reasons to make their own blockchain as well so that they can optimize kind of their buyback and burn mechanism and some of the characteristics there. Then you've got your application-specific blockchains like Helium or the Graph, many of which are kind of switching to EVM compatible chains, some of which at least. Um, so maybe that kind of gets subsumed into into layer ones. But I, I'd say like those are the three categories that we like, also decentralized infrastructure. Uh, and then, you know, the categories or the sectors that we're maybe a little less certain on because they maybe don't have a path. To, like we're looking for um, projects that have a path to 100 million users, a strong moat, and predictable tokenomics. And when you look at categories like DeFi or like the execution layer uh, of, a, of a smart contract platform, like, like the scaling solutions or gaming tokens or meme coins, we just, we don't find those three things, right? A path to 100 million users, clear token value accrual and a network effect. So th those are like, those are really the three characteristics that we're going for. To answer your question, there's so many chains that hit those three characteristics that, you know, we can only conclude that the future is multi-chain. I, I really like your, you know, your comment on building a strong moat, right? You know, building a defensible business. Can you, can you speak to a couple of, of projects that you, because 
you know, seemingly there have been a large number of projects in this space that have been, you know, you mentioned a DeFi, and I think that's a great example where like, okay, Uniswap is the hottest thing ever. And Uniswap actually has a ton of users, but it's it's not a valued asset, right? And that's probably because it has a bad token accrual mechanism. But like, there are a lot of projects in this space that just don't seem to be defensible. An example being like, you know, Axie Infinity or Stepin, like they get really hot temporarily and then they kind of die and they haven't ingrained themselves in the lives of any of their users. And it turns out, well, they were just, you know, fads. And so I'm curious as to what you think is a defensible moat in this space uh, and what you think will become defensible moats. Like what attributes of projects make them defensible? Sure. I mean, so I guess I'd want to break that up into the supply side and and the demand side. So like on the supply side, it's are developers going to remain excited about this project such that they continue to iterate and build new functionality onto the chain. And that's where the layer ones have such a strong advantage, you know, because of how composable those chains are and how big the ecosystem of developers that's built up around them. So, you know, we have obviously big positions in ETH and, and Solana and some of the other ones like Avalanche and, and Polkadot. So that's kind of a supply side argument. And then you you wait for applications to be built on top of those chains and watch the fees and make sure that the fees are growing alongside the users. But then on the demand side for these application-specific blockchains, you want to see folks using the native token in order to, to buy that service. You know, So like in the case of Helium, where there's been a lot of controversy about that project, but you know they're bootstrapping an IoT network from scratch by selling miners to folks who put them in their bedrooms. And then those folks are broadcasting IoT signals throughout their neighborhoods and kind of waiting for Who's gonna Who's gonna be you know the software company that builds an app on top of that helium such that everyone needs to pay helium tokens to figure out you know the temperature of their sidewalk on any given day, and there you know it, the, that killer app has been slow to materialize, um, so the token has underperformed. So you really want to find that that intersection, I think, of where the, the there's obviously big brains who are looking to build, but then we're looking for product market fit uh, where folks are actually using the token to transact. Has, has there been any killer app? Because we, we, we talk about this, you know, we've talked about this in the space for so long is there has to be this killer app, this killer use case. And I would personally argue that stable coins are that killer use case for remittances and a few other reasons. But I'm curious as to beyond just stable coins, if you think there's actually a real utility or use case of any of these things at this point. I mean, I would argue that storing value on a censorship resistant blockchain with a predetermined monetary policy, like that is the killer use case, right? Bitcoin is the killer use case because it makes people feel comfortable to hold an asset that they are confident will not be inflated away by unaccountable central bankers. So to me, that is a real use case. I realize it's not for many people. I agree with you on on Bitcoin, by the way, as well. Yeah. yeah. So everything else is like a version of that. Um, but I will answer your question um, more specifically. Um, like anything built on Ethereum, right? Where you're like, this is a very clear use case and therefore should accrue value to that project and then Ethereum kind of more broadly. Yeah, yeah. 
there's some early stage projects that I think make the uh, make the case well. One is Hive Mapper. Have you have you heard of this project? I haven't um, yet. So it's a Solana-based project. Uh, they are bootstrapping a Google Maps competitor. So you buy a miner, which it's an open source dash cam, which goes in your car and you're driving around and it's mapping all of your surroundings and you're getting paid these honey tokens for your work. Then uh, you've got your map curators who ingest all that data, scrub out the license plate numbers and whatever private information there is, um, boost the rewards in the geographies that haven't been mapped recently. So you incentivize your drivers to drive the regions that are under mapped. Uh, and, and like that's the supply side, right? And then on the demand side, you're looking for who wants to build the next decentralized Uber. Because if you look at Uber and Lyft, their cost of goods sold, a, a, a large percentage of it goes to paying licensing fees for Google Maps. Mapping is an oligopoly. Three players have like 90% of the market, ridiculously high margins. You can spend $80,000 a month on Google Maps without even talking to a salesperson. So if you can get a decentralized alternative with a much lower take rate, you know, someone, especially in emerging markets, will want to build this next Google Maps. Uh, and you know, there's other projects that are kind of variations on that theme, I think, like even basic attention token, uh, the Brave Browsers uh, advertising network is a is a variation on that theme. Tokenomics for some of these projects need to be refined a little bit. Um, but I think those are, that's one pretty clear example of a real world uh, use case. Yeah, I mean, I've made like $120 on Brave in the last three years. So, you know, never saw Are you selling it or are you holding no. it? No, you got a KYC to sell it, and I could never be bothered to KYC for a hundred dollars. But okay. maybe at some point, it's always, I, always in my head, it's like when it hits this amount of money, then I'll finally go through all the effort to actually get my brave out into dollars. It's definitely- yeah, I mean that, that's one of our question marks for the token is like, what is, what will it be used for, such that people don't automatically sell it every time it comes into their well, the wallet. Great, the greatest thing it has going for its token economics is the fact that you have to KYC. Because uh, <laughs> if you didn't, it would be sold way faster. So. Um, well, we'll see because they're coming out with a with a Dex, and you know their new wallet has some better functionality. So if you can start to use this as collateral in DeFi, or to your point about stable coins, maybe there'll be a a stable coin version that you can use to, you know, buy more ads or or, or what have you. Like that could be quite powerful. And so you know we've talked a lot about crypto, but you know you've you've you know you started in this role as head of digital asset research about a year and a half ago. So. What has been your favorite parts about being in the space and kind of your least favorite things uh, about being in crypto? Probably the same answer for both, which is just the speed and the dynamism in the space. You know, trying to... Equity investors are used to having the world served on a plate to them by brokers who are basically in their inbox every morning offering, you know, conference calls with this executive or here's this research that we've done. And it's all very, um, you know, it's fast moving and, and ever changing. Centralized, which means it's totally disorganized and it's all over the place. Correct. Correct. I like that we use, we use decentralized and disorganized as synonyms in this space. Sometimes it feels like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that's both my my most favorite and my least favorite, right? Because information is highly fragmented. So there's a lot of alpha if you can get to it early and get conviction. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I have to build the ca- the catalyst calendar from scratch. Um, there's, you know, there's no Bloomberg page to just hit in calendar and 
look at the menu of, of things going on on Wall Street that day. So, yeah. Stay tuned, Wink, for anybody who's a client on the call. Uh, but uh, so, so you spoke a little bit to things from traditional finance, right? Like having a prime broker and get soft dollars and all the value that that prime broker is offering to you, right? But, but how does your experience in traditional, in traditional finance help you in understanding and analyzing digital assets? Like what have you taken from your role as a, as a more traditional PM and kind of brought into digital assets? It's a good question. Sometimes I wonder if there's anything of use, <laughs> but I think there are certain similarities in, in all asset classes. You know, you have to imagine what the world might look like in three to five years. Uh, you have to try to handicap those outcomes in probability terms. You have to try to identify the securities with the most exposure to certain themes. Uh, and then you have to try to figure out how your competitors are positioned so that you avoid uh, overcrowding. I'm sure you and, and much of your audience has read the book, Super Forecasters. Um, you know, there's basically three behaviors that correlate with success in, the, in this business. Uh, you know, you have to be open-minded. Uh, you have to make forecasts and probability weight them. And then you have to update those forecasts frequently in order to measure uh, how things are proceeding against your, your assumptions. And of course, all that is easier than it sounds uh, because of all the behavioral mistakes that are kind of hardwired into our, uh, into ourselves as humans. But from that perspective, you know, I'm, in, I'm investing in, in coins with a price on the screen and, and the price is always changing. And I think some of the same patterns uh, go into managing money, no matter what the asset class is. Uh, and then the other thing that we've tried to do is really bring like a traditional DCF approach to valuation. So all the coins, most, most of the coins that we own, uh, we have financial models on and we assume a certain free cash flow yield in 2030, incorporating our expected inflation rate uh, of the token at that time in order to level set uh, our valuation approach. There's a fair bit more guesswork in, in coming up with those models. Sometimes we're debating, you know, we're debating what we think the tokenomics should be because they haven't arrived there yet. Uh, but that's part of the fun stuff too, because then we can get on the phone and talk to some of the entrepreneurs who are who are building these projects and uh, have a little give and take about that. So, in, in that sense, it's um, you know maybe Do you similar feel like to you have yeah more more access and opportunity to work with the crypto native issuers than you did to work with you know issuers you know when you're an equity you know, PM? And are they receptive to feedback on the on the, the token side? It depends. So some teams don't want to talk about it at all because they are attuned to the legal risks around marketing a security or non-security. Um, so you've got some teams that are, you know, really close to the vest, not that accessible. And I think, you know, opaque for the right reasons, which is that they themselves don't know and don't want to get into trouble by, by promising something. Uh, so those projects are a bit more challenging to model. Uh, and then earlier stage projects looking for, you know, a seed stage check or a series A, obviously much more receptive to ideas from their investors. And so the uh, a question that we ask everyone on the podcast, it is the fundamental value podcast after all, is how do you define fundamentals for digital assets and does it depend on the token? I think we've hit on this a bit throughout the episode, but it would be great to get your thoughts there. It definitely depends on the token. 
you know, we, we are, we're number go up investors. So we're looking for free cash flow and we're modeling these target prices based on this inflation adjusted free cash flow yield in, in 2030. So you got to find what protocols are going to be so valuable that users will pay to use them. And, you know, that's not Dogecoin and Shiba Inu. That's layer ones, exchange tokens, decentralized infrastructure, you know, for, for the most part. And then, um, you know, we want to invest in projects post product market fit. So they have users, they have a business model, and now they're just looking to scale. So we like to identify, you know, what are the handful of KPIs that are likely to correlate most highly with fees, and then track the fees uh, as, as they come. So for layer ones, as an example, right, you want to look at the number of transactions, the number of active wallets, uh, the number of active dApps, the development activity. So how, how quickly are folks hitting the GitHubs uh, and then and then the TVL and those five factors have the highest correlation with price. Uh, and we think at least the, high, the highest correlation with, with for future fees, uh, although, you know, some of them are less mature on the fee on the, from a fee perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's totally right. The the challenge I think in this space, and obviously as as a data firm, right, slightly biased when I think the challenge is, but the challenge that I always have is how do you actually compare the number of transactions across chain? Like, what actually is a transaction? How do you actually define a transaction? What's the actual mechanism and stuff like that? So, I think I think you're totally right. Like, you have to come up with the best. It, it's always about bet coming up with the best alternatives, right? When you don't actually have traditional metrics that maybe make a bit more sense. It's always like, what is the alternative metric that we can find on chain to kind of understand this asset? I think the challenge that we have a space and it's thing that we're trying to tackle, but I think it's something that as a space you need to tackle holistically is figuring out like, okay, what does this actually mean? Right? How do you define a transaction? How do you define an active address? Like there's, I mean, I, I think a great example of this the other day, I'm sure you saw this, the Solana, the Sabre founders who faked being, by the way, totally incredibly impressive. They faked <laughs> being like 12 developers at the same time and like faked 8 billion of the 11 billion in TVL on Solana or, you know, so they claim. And so, you know, curious as to, you know, your thoughts, I guess, on that issue more broadly, if you think it's been a challenge for you or, or you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. If not, you know. Yeah, I mean, Data getting getting good data is, is the probably the biggest challenge um, in this space. And you know, I use the Thai terminal. I think it's excellent, um, but I have to use everything else as well because no one provider is really has enough fundamental coverage of all the major coins so as to make these apples to apples comparisons. So it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Like I we're, know, we're, I sympathize with you, my man. Yeah, I, it's it's just that the, the challenge there is with everything else, with all the data except for blockchain data, it's very easy. But with blockchain data, the, the major challenge for anybody listening and anybody who's curious is the fact that the the data structure on all these blockchains are totally different. Like anything that's Ethereum compatible, EVM compatible, you talked about that earlier, is fantastic. If you're a developer, please build something EVM compatible. It makes everyone's life so much easier, at least from a data perspective. But the challenge is the structure of all these blockchains are totally different. For example, like a random chain, which a lot of listeners may or may not be fans of, but no opinion, just a fact. Cardano doesn't actually have a token standard, which means that if you wanted to do all the on-chain data on Cardano, no matter what you think of it, you'd actually need to connect to all the individual APIs of every single project that's building on top of Cardano, which is insane. Like it's an absolutely, it doesn't make any sense. Like 
Ethereum has ERC-20 tokens. Cardano doesn't have a token standard. And so it's like practically impossible to do that. So I think this is a challenge, which is it's not... It's not a money challenge. It's a time challenge. It's going to take somebody a lot of time to actually fully map all of these things out. But it's coming. I think a lot of a lot of progress has certainly been made. But I think to your point, you know, a lot a lot is left to go. And especially like, okay, now Aptos is here, and all these new chains are here, and now this is just compounding to the 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 ever growing problems that we have. And I think another you know related challenge is just the fact that every day there's a new pro layer one that people are excited about, right? And it's like, okay, Solana is super hot this year, so now we have to support it. Oh, wait, now it's actually Cosmos is getting really hot, right? And it's kind of like this, this hip-hopping. But in a similar and related point to hip-hopping between the trendiest chains, uh, fast-forwarding 24 months from now, looking at the top 100 assets that exist today uh, by market cap, how many of those are still going to be here? And why are different coins going to be in their place? So how many of the top 100 cryptocurrency by market cap will still be in the top 100 in, in five years, you said? Or two, two, years. two years, okay. By the yeah. way, for, for anyone who hasn't done this before, really recommend checking out CoinMarketCap actually has this thing. It's called the, uh, I don't know if I could find it. It basically allows you to see the, uh, the history. You can actually go back in time and see like, it's like their version of the Wayback Machine where you can go back in time and you can go to like 2017 and see what the hottest coins were. So I'll post the link in the description. Lots of fun. But yeah, curious as to, to your thoughts and I'll see if I can drop you the link in the middle of this call as well. Yeah, I, I would say like 60% probably uh, would, would still be in the top 100. I think that we've made good progress on you know, weeding out at least some of them, some of the scammier coins, and uh, you know we'll see meme coins kind of f fade down the list of of top tokens. But then every once in a while you'll get a big airdrop, right? So the, the like associated with this ETH merge, we're likely to have um, a hard fork and a new Ethereum proof of work coin with considerable market cap, um, judging by the futures markets. And, you know, that will probably keep some some market cap for quite some time. So it's not like of the 30 or 40 that will replace the top 100, like not all those will be stellar projects either. There'll be some, some weirdos in there as well. Yeah. So by the way, for anyone listening, I just dropped you the link. It's coinmarketcap.com slash historical. Uh, but I just pulled up literally two years ago from today, looking at the top uh, 100 tokens, and it's uh, a bit of a shit show, especially towards the end. Uh, Idea Chain Coin Advanced Internet Blocks. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting ones in here, but the top the top 20 are still for the most part there. Uh, you know they've moved around quite considerably, but they're definitely still there. Um, so kind of fun to play around with, and so. Let's kind of get into uh, something a little bit more timely, the Ethereum merge. So what are your thoughts on the upcoming Ethereum merge? And you know what, what will happen to ETH's price after the merge happens? A lot of people are speculating that ETH is going to sell off after the merge. So it looks like the merge is getting de-risked uh, quite a bit. The most likely scenario is that we are go for September 19th, uh, although... This Friday, August 12th, I don't know when this is airing, but there's going to be another Ethereum core developers call and, and we should get either like more confirmation or um, 
clarification around that September 19th date. Um, it's, it's hard to predict what will happen after the merge without predicting what will happen before. But if, if we look at the September futures contracts for ETH on Deribit and the other derivatives exchanges, um, you can immediately observe the directional bias uh, in this market. So there's, there's overwhelming demand to purchase calls at a premium. Uh, we're now seeing a backwardation. So when the futures curve is, is uh, lower, uh, the longer out we go across both ETH options and futures, which is quite rare. Uh, we're seeing more volumes in ETH derivatives than we are in Bitcoin. So all these point to you know quite a bit of, of optimism creeping into the Ethereum market. Uh, but then if you look at October in the futures market, um, the implied volatility for Ethereum is higher for downside price protection than it is for upside. So people are paying up for downside protection in October. So I guess you could say the consensus is that ETH will run up into the merge and then sell off. But I think there's also the possibility, right? So one popular trade right now is to buy ETH and then short ETH futures. And you can do that delta neutral uh, because the contract expiry is in September. And since the ETH spot holders are likely to collect this airdrop of the new proof of work ETH chain, uh, it's essentially free money to short the futures and, and buy the physical, collect that airdrop, and then close out the chain. Uh, and then, you know, Chainlink announced today that they won't support the new proof of work chain. So I'm, I'm guessing we're going to get everyone in a rush to sell that ETH1, the proof of work chain, and then maybe that money flows into the new Ethereum proof of stake chain. Uh, and so maybe the sell-off post the merge is not as bad as, as everyone is expecting. Um, so that's kind of how we're thinking about it, is that it's a fundamentally bullish development for ETH uh, because, first of all, just de-risking what has been years of execution in the making. And second, the you know more pronounced disinflationary characteristics that ETH, ETH will have uh, post-proof of stake. So it, it deserves a higher multiple and it deserves a higher price. And then we'll just see how folks are positioned afterwards and whether uh, a new narrative has emerged and whether we're, we're in a bull market where everyone can feel confident to then try to find you know the next kind of high-risk development in, uh, in this space. And you actually alluded to a bunch of things which uh, relate to my next question, which is, what do you think of the proposed ETH forks? Like you mentioned Chainlink isn't going to support it. Is any or any projects do you think going to support the uh, proof of work forks of Ethereum or, you know, the, I guess, the existing chain? Um, you know, kind of curious to your thoughts there. You know, does anybody care other than the, uh, other than the miners? Well, if the miners care, that's enough to get to get some of the ecosystem on board. So I, I don't think it's going to be a, a terribly dynamic ecosystem. I don't think there's going to be a lot of, you know, smart contract functionality going on or, or really exciting apps that people look to build. But we can see from Ethereum Classic, it's still what's six or seven billion dollars in market cap, still a pretty vibrant miner uh, community. And, you know, I, I could see that lingering um, in the ETH proof of work chain for some time. Uh, although, from my perspective, it doesn't really fit into what I would consider to be a smart contract leader. Um, so I, I can't see um, holding it without a change in um, the reality. And so what what in crypto has you most excited right now? I'm excited about about Bitcoin over the next 18 months. I mean, I think Bitcoin's the tail that wags this the, the whole dog. Uh, I don't think that the proof of stake chains are going to work unless Bitcoin works. And I think we've gone through a brutal year long 
bear market that was you know partially a result of a change in monetary policy and a change in the inflation outlook but also importantly a pretty negative political backdrop uh, we've had two years of a very progressive uh, administration in the US just pounding this asset class with bad news after bad news and I think that's going to change you know starting in November and then leading into 2024 which corresponds with the next Bitcoin having you know there's there's eight million people in the world right now who live in countries where Bitcoin is legal tender I, I think that goes to 80 million over the next year and a half uh, as more countries kind of realize the the geopol- geopolitical dynamics and embrace this like neutral energy-backed money and as as that happens, there's going to be a lot of excitement around the proof of stake chains uh, and all these applications, whether it's you know Hive Mapper or, or Helium or the Graph, they're they're going to start to see an acceleration in adoption and 100 million people uh, users heading on chain because of the Bitcoin bull market, uh, which is going to give everybody uh, the confidence to bank with Bitcoin as the reserve asset. And so my final question is, what is your most controversial take right now? I'm sorry to repeat it, but I think my my controversial take is that the number of people who live in countries where Bitcoin is legal tender will 10x uh, in the next 18 months. Uh, we've had two countries with 4 million people each, and the next one will be an order of magnitude higher. I don't know whether it's going to be, you know, in in Ukraine or Latin America or Africa or the South Pacific. But uh, when that happens and when the politics change, and they always do, uh, then the narrative will be will be very different, and 100k Bitcoin will seem cheap. Thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on. I really enjoyed this. I learned a ton. I. I I partially do these episodes to ask questions that I wouldn't otherwise be able to ask. So I appreciate you letting me pick your brain today. Uh, And so where can listeners uh, find out uh, a little bit more about you, follow you online, but also about VanAck? And we'll make sure to put all those in in the show notes as well. Sure. Yeah, we have a, a VanAck Digital Assets page. So if you just type in VanAck Digital Assets, you can sign up on our distribution list. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Matthew underscore Siegel. Uh, I should also note that we VanAck has a community NFT project. Uh, so we airdropped uh, 1,000 NFTs. We had 50,000 Ethereum addresses. Uh, we collated the list down to 1,000. These NFT holders get early access to our research. They get to attend our events. Where you're going to see those NFTs deployed in some interesting uh, metaverse applications coming up. Uh, so uh, please find the Vanek NFT, follow me on Twitter, and uh, sign up for our distributions for, uh, for all the info. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Matthew. 